to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. So good to see you. In the England and Wales school system, when you come to the final couple of years in your school, you are permitted to be more selective as to what subjects you take. You're allowed to choose and study those that you are good at and those that you enjoy. And all the ones that have bored you down for the last five or six years, you're able to leave behind. And so it was for me. I don't know if it's the same here in New Zealand, but we were allowed to do that. And so when I came to the last couple of years of schooling, I was able to drop some wonderful subjects. I was able to drop art. I was able to drop physics. Thank you, Jesus. But... But above all, I was able to drop maths. You know what I mean? You need to, people who can do maths are scary people. And they always say, oh, has anybody ever used algebra since you left school? And don't say, oh, you use it every day. Goodness me. Nonsense. But I got a chance to, do, to drop some of those subjects. And uh, I was able to choose history. I was able to draw, uh, do geography. And I got to... This is going to sound weird. And I got to choose Greek and Roman literature. And I got to study the classics, the Greek classics. My dad was a very typical Welsh farmer. And I remember his face when I went home and I asked his permission, which he did in those days. You asked your parents' permission to study these things. And he looked at me and he just thought, and he didn't say anything. And he just thought to himself, what sort of a son have I got here that is studying Greek and Roman literature? I loved it. One of the great Greek stories that held a fascination for me was one that was told when the world was fresh and the world was new and the gods walked with man. And one in particular, Prometheus, who was the creator of them all and he was the wisest of them all. But in an argument to do with fire and to do with mankind, he had an argument with Zeus and therefore had to be punished and have a horrific death. So in order to carry out this, Zeus conceived a plan and he created the first woman to help him carry out this plan that he had to get retribution. And her name was Pandora. The gods decided to give her all the different kinds of seductive gifts that she could use to seduce man and to bring him into ruin. She fell in love, and she fell in love with Epiphanes. And on their wedding night, as it was planned, they were about to consummate their marriage. And Zeus had given her this box. And this box, he had told her not to open. Do not open this box, Pandora. And on their wedding night, Zeus knew that curiosity would get the better of her. That's a typical statement, isn't it? Curiosity got the better of this woman. And so on her wedding night, she opens the box. For those of you who know the story, you're well ahead of me. She opened the box, and out of this box started to flow the most horrific, hellish things of abomination. The foulest, the worst things that could ever be conceived by mankind and the gods. And they started to flow out of Pandora's box 
and they flew onto her, and they rolled onto her table, onto the floor, out through the door, and into the world. And all the hellishness that was in Pandora's box covered the earth. And thus we have the phrase, Pandora's box. Understandably, Pandora was horrified, and with tears streaming down her face, she took one last look in the jar because she wanted to put the lid back on it to see if there was something that she could do to stop it. And as she did so, she looked, and at the bottom of this box, there was one thing that was left. All the abomination had flowed out, and there was one thing that left at the bottom of her box, having seen all this evil flow out. And the thing that was left was called hope. And Pandora knew that hope had the potential to transform something awful into something at least bearable that hope had the potential to change failure into success, of moving someone from success, from failure to success and to renewal. She knew that hope had the power to bring transformation, that hope was a powerful commodity. So she left the lid off, and she allowed hope to flow out of the box. Of course, it's only a story. It's complete fiction. But I believe that God has given us one of the most potent gifts we ever have in Jesus Christ, and it is hope. And this morning and for the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about this hope that we have as Christians. And if in Greek mythology, it has the power to change people's lives, how much more does the hope that we have through Jesus have the ability to transform our lives, our families, and our communities? communities. I want to explore this hope that we have as Christians. You know, I have to confess that it seems that wherever I have looked over the last few months, and when I come in contact with the the people that I have the privilege of pastoring, that due to the brokenness of life and the desperation of situations and the consequences of sin, I am seeing little or no hope in people's lives. I know that's a perception and it's not the full truth, but wherever I seem to turn, wherever I seem to have to get involved in people's lives, hope seems to be an incredibly rare commodity, the consequences of sin and what people have done and what they've had done to them. It seems to be a season of hopelessness, or at least it's a perception. Marriages of decades falling apart, the countless numbers of lonely people Many in marriages, yet surrounded by families, but oh, so lonely, lacking love and lacking intimacy. Marriage does not give us immunity to loneliness. Others, too, are lonely as they perceive that they will have no one to share their lives, but above all, no one to share their dreams with, and their world seems hopeless. But there are those who are damaged, male and female, by the, prom- by the problem of an addiction, that promises to give something that then robs us of what it promised, and when it comes, it ruins our lives. Children who have walked away from God and their parents with broken hearts, lives that are living on the edge of failure every day because of anxiety, depression, mental health issues. But probably in the midst of all that, what concerns me as much as anything else is The assumption that this is as good as it gets, and this is my lot. 
Is there anything that I can do to change it? I'm not there myself theologically or philosophically, and I don't think I will ever be there. But if I, I do understand today, if people ask the question, does the gospel really work today? Is it as powerful as it once was? Is it as powerful as we purport it to be? Is it as powerful as we preach it to be? Please hear this. These are not the words of a, of a heretic, but simply of someone who is regularly asked the question by people when all around them in their world is falling apart and there seems to be no hope. And we just cannot give cheap and trite and superficial answers in reply. We need to ask the question. And I know our answer will come back, yes, of course it works. And yes, of course, that is the answer. Because many of us have seen God do things time and time and time again in our life. But this morning, I just want to come back and just have a look at this wonderful concept of hope. Because this seems to be this pandemic of hopelessness. <coughs> what is our Christian hope? Hope is mentioned 180 times in the Bible, so it must be important. But why? Faith and hope are closely linked. You can have hope, but if you don't, if you can have faith, but if you don't have hope, you don't get the whole package as it were. Faith and hope go together. While faith is believing and trusting in someone we cannot see, hope is imagining that there is something there to believe in, something that can be better, something that can be lived for. Faith is putting our trust in God to help in a point of need, but hope opens the door to the fact that he might do something far more than we can imagine or hope for. Faith is the foundation, but hope, as it were, gives us the wings. Without hope, there can be no real faith, because otherwise we would not even deign to pray for those things that we, we dream for and just believe that only God can do. Proverbs tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a, true of, is a tree of life. I love it the way that Irwin McManus puts it in his book, Soul Cravings. He says two things. Hope is essential for souls to thrive. And then he says, if you don't believe that you have a future worth living for, your spirit loses all hope, and your soul wasn't designed to live without hope. In fact, when we lose all hope, we lose all desire to live. But that is the power of it. So this morning, I want us to take a step back in order that we can take a step forward. I want to take a step back to remind ourselves, to refresh ourselves, and maybe recalibrate ourselves as to what is our hope. Or more, more likely, I should put it like, who is our hope? Because in doing, I run the risk of the risk is that what I'm gonna talk about is incredibly familiar. And that's the problem that I face because what I wanna share with you is about concepts that perhaps you've always seen them in one particular way. But this morning I want to look at some things from the life of Jesus in a different way that make us think about, wow, who is this Jesus? Friends, I believe that sometimes one of the biggest hindrances to the moving of the Holy Spirit and his work in our life is familiarity. Now, we would never say oh, that we're contemptuous of the word of God and those things, but sometimes we become so familiar and we read it again. I want you to go away this morning more impressed with Jesus than you have ever been. Over these couple of weeks, I want to just 
help us to fall in love with Jesus, who he is. The Jesus who many of us have grown up with and have known perhaps for years is more majestic, is more regal, more powerful than we will ever, ever imagine. And I believe it'll only be, we'll get a glimpse of it when he comes to take his church and when we see him in glory. But Jesus is far more wonderful than we can ever realize. And you know, when you talk about Jesus and when you talk about how wonderful he is, the only place that you can start, and it's not a real winner with people, but you have to start with the Trinity. You have to start with how wonderful it is. And that's a difficult place to start. You know, you know the Bible tells us very little about the Trinity. And I'm probably going to upset all the theologians here. But I wish it had said nothing at all, because at least we'd have known nothing about it. But now we look through this glass dimly, and we have the Trinity. And that more than anything else starts to give us an incredible insight into what the majesty of Jesus is all about. Let me tell you what it was like as a young boy growing up in South Wales, and this was my theology of the Trinity. On top was the father, he was the scary one. He was officially the scary one. The one that I went to occasionally, uh, and only to apologize, and to say I was sorry. And uh, in my mind he was severe, he was august, he was ceremonial, and he scared the living daylights out of me. And don't think it was because I had an earthly father that was the same. My earthly father was completely different. But I had the image that the, uh, the father in the Trinity was the scary one. And then the, there was the Holy Spirit. That was, that was okay. But the Holy Spirit, when I was growing up, generally passed me by and was relatively anonymous Yes, in a, in, a, in a Pentecostal church in South Wales, but he passed me by. And he seemed to pass by most people in our church. And the ones that he didn't pass by absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> they were the whackjacks. I'm trying to think of a phrase that was not too offensive. But you mean, if that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life, you can leave it over there. So I was content with being middle of the road and boring, but... He, the Holy Spirit didn't really bother me. But thankfully, you see, I didn't need to worry because I had Jesus, and Jesus was part of the Trinity, and he was the one that would take care of me. He was my friend. Jesus was the one in my mind that stood in front of me when I came to speak to the Father. I used to put my head around, and if I had to apologize, I'd apologize and get out of his presence. I hid behind Jesus. Jesus was my friend. Jesus did far more for me than anything else. But I slowly had to learn that that was not a true image of God. And I had to learn something of the majesty and the awesomeness of the Trinity of which Jesus was an integral to. The life of the Trinity of which Jesus is, as I said, integral, has been from eternity and will be for eternity and is complete and whole in and of itself and it needs no one or anything at all to help it function. The persons of the Godhead depend on nothing dwelling for all time in perfect relationship, power, and glory. They are one in perfect unity, three in perfect diversity. What is true of the one is the true of all three. The Son, our Jesus, the one that I want to impress with you again this morning, unmade but eternally begotten, became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, prone to the limitations of a human body, that that blessed body, which today sits in heaven 
at the right hand of the Father. Nevertheless, he who chose limitations is now unlimited in what he can do and what he will do. And he is the one who gives us hope in the mundaneness of life. What we see in the Gospels is just a snapshot of who Jesus is. He in the awesomeness left heaven and came, limited himself to 30 plus years in the body of a man who was yet God, yet man, and he is the one whom we need to fall in love with. Over the past years, I think one of the things that God has done for me is that he's helped me fall in love with Jesus again and again, and especially the godness of who he is. Nothing is too difficult for him. I believe that as Pentecostals, over the, especially in the 21st century, and I was reading some literature online over the last 36 hours, which really does verify and confirm this, but as Pentecostals, we have tended to stress the humanness of Jesus, which is fine and which is really good, but we stress the humanness of Jesus because it comforts us in our fragility. And part of the problem is that we can get stuck there, that we always see someone who comforts us in our weakness, in our fragility, and in our sin. But because we are like that, it helps us, and we lose something of the awesomeness of who he is. He is our friend, but he is also God. In truth, the New Testament writers take more time to stress the divine nature of Jesus than they do the human. Go back and have a look at the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> they will talk more about how God he is than they do the humanness. We have switched this in the 21st century as we have concentrated on the human aspect. How can Jesus be God? Well, and yet he walked here on earth. You know, the Gentiles knew that the gods lived on Mount, uh, Mount Olympus, just outside Thessalonica. Thessalonica, and the Jews knew that Jesus, uh, the Jews knew that God was in heaven, and he wasn't going to come and have anything to do with them. And when, the, when the, the New Testament writers write what they do, which we will look at very briefly for a few moments this morning, they are writing to first century eyes. And I think that's the problem that we have to try and get around is we need to see the New Testament in the context of New Testament eyes. The New Testament writers time and time again assent that Jesus is God without explaining it. He, they just say who it is. They, they give us insights. They give us little snippets into the awesomeness of who Jesus is. So when we get into the gospel, we pick up little hints, little clues as to who Jesus is especially in the writings of Luke, who is incredible in telling us all these things about Jesus. It's as if Luke wants us to ask the questions, who are you, Jesus? We've, we've never seen anything like you before. How do you achieve these miracles? How do you cast out demons? How do you forgive sins without people even asking them to be forgiven? And what are our sins anyway that you know how to forgive them? Who are you that you can do all these incredible things? Jesus, you break the rules. You shouldn't be doing that. Why are you so presumptuous? But then perhaps it's not presumption at all. It could be because you are someone incredible. And it could be that you are Jesus and that you are the God and that you are the King of Kings. 
So Luke is asking us all these questions. So I want us very briefly this morning just to really look at one well-known story in the New Testament. Discover what the writers were really trying to tell us. That Jesus, whilst human, was and is completely God. So we're going to start and we're going to come to the baptism of Jesus. A story we know so well and this may be part of the problem. We know we can tell the story and we know what happens, etc., etc., etc. But friends, whenever you read the New Testament, can I ask you just to do a couple of things? Ask questions of the text. Of the text. What is being said? You see, these guys are writing the New Testament, they are not historians. They are not just scribes. These guys are preachers. These are sermons. They're trying to tell us something about Jesus. They're trying to tell us something what's in front of them. And those, that is the perspective that they are coming from. They want us to ask questions of the text. And the text that I want us to read this morning is Matthew chapter 3. And it's the story of the, the baptism of Jesus. And it says, Jesus then appeared, arriving at the Jordan River from Galilee. He wanted John to baptize him. John objected, I am the one who needs to be baptized not you, but Jesus insisted, do it. God's work, putting things right, all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism. So, Jesus, so John did it. The moment Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit, a voice said, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. The story of the baptism of Jesus is obviously about Jesus being baptized. But is that all it's trying to tell us? Is that the most important thing in this story? And I would like to suggest that it's not. When Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us what happened, I believe they are telling us far more insightful things just than the fact that Jesus was baptized. The story, however you may disagree with this, the story is not to tell us that we are to simply follow Jesus and that we need to get baptized because Jesus was. And it's not simply telling us that we need to get baptized in water as opposed to wine or custard. It is telling us something far more than this. It is telling us those things, yes, but it is pointing forward to something else that is about to come. You see, the story after this is that Jesus is about to take on the arch enemy himself. That's the big showdown. That's what's coming. And if we see these two stories as separate, we miss the whole point. This is just the prelude. This is just the introduction to the big showdown where they go head to head for 40 days. And you know, we'll come and look at it next week. You know something, there was never any doubt that Jesus was gonna win. Don't think for one second that Satan had a chance because I believe that Satan had been set up by God to fail but we'll look at that next week. But we look at this today and say, this is a prelude to what's happening and we need to see it that. Matthew 3, 16 says, we are told that the heavens opened and I often used to think that it was that the clouds parted. That's what that they were telling us, the clouds parted. But the Bible, the original Greek does not tell us that. It says that the heavens opened, they were torn apart. Actually, if you visit today, in 21st century Israel, where Jesus was probably baptized. <laughs> it was north of the Dead Sea, well below, well below um, sea level. It has its own micro 
weather system in the Jordan Valley. And you'd see some clouds, you wouldn't see a lot, but you would see some. So he's not talking here about the clouds being open. The Bible says that the heavens are torn open, that God the Father tears them open. And for us, 21st century, that's really nice. That's really good. That's a nice thing that a father does for his son, and then he goes on to say some nice things that, he was, that he's pleased with him. But you see, the Jewish reader of first century Palestine had already had their attention caught because in the Old Testament, when God turns up, it is often used, the phrase is often used, the heavens opened. So they knew when they read this that something supernatural was happening. This wasn't just some nice weather condition that was happening or nice something in the clouds. They knew that God had, was about to speak as he had in the Old Testament about this person that they could see in front of him. This was incredibly melodramatic. The writers had their attention. It was what we would call a literary device to make people sit up and listen. Something sensational is about to happen. The word literally means split apart, and God is going to do something. It's like the curtains of the theater. You know, when the theater curtains go back, there's that real sense of all the little mumblings, the lights had gone down, we know the show's going to start in a couple of minutes, everybody's mumbling quietly, whispering, and then the curtain goes back and everybody goes, quiet. The super trooper, the arc light, is now on Jesus, and heaven is making a pronouncement It's God's way of saying, listen, be quiet. Jesus is sent to stage, and he wants us to learn something special about his son. And the the next thing that happens is that the spirit lands on his head in the form of a dove. Why did the spirit come at all? I I could never used to work out, why did the spirit come? Why is he making a public appearance at, excuse me, at this time? Holy Spirit, why are you there? This is Jesus' show. You're not supposed to be there. And many of us, I think, have assumed or maybe even have been taught that the Spirit came because Jesus was about to start the serious business of his life. So Jesus needs someone to support him. Poor old Jesus, good old Jesus, but the serious business was about to start. So he needs a helper, he needs a mentor, he needs a guide, he needs a power source, a source of energy. He needs some, somebody with some muscle, because the times ahead are gonna get really tough in the next three and a half years. And that the Spirit has been sent from heaven to help poor Jesus is the implication of many scenarios. I would like you to think, not to think, that that is the reason why the Spirit came. Friends, don't forget that Jesus had already lived for 30 years and by now he had lived sinlessly. He had conquered every temptation and every vestige of sin. He didn't need help from the Holy Spirit. He had managed to deal with everything that had come his way. At 12 years old, you know, we read the story that he went to the temple and the family started to go back and they, they couldn't find him and when they went back to Jerusalem, they found Jesus in the temple debating and bamboozling all the scholars that were there. These are not ignorant men. These are not just men who sit around and want to chew the fat and smoke the pipe and drink shorts. These are men who were incredibly educated. They knew the Talmud off by heart. And the Talmud is five times bigger than the Old Testament. These are clever, clever guys. And the Bible tells us 
in the Chris Jones version that Jesus bamboozled them with his intelligence and with his understanding and his grasp. And when the family comes back to him and looks for him, he says he was about his father's business. He was the business. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't come just to help him through the next next three years as if Jesus was, oh, I'm pleased you've come because I was wondering why I was here. Jesus had a power source available to him before the Spirit descends. So why is he there? Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels, when, people, when, people, when Jesus heals people, he never says, Holy Spirit, I want you to come and heal them. Have you ever have you noticed that? He never prays, God, I want you to, you know, like whenever we pray for people, we know that we're the conduit for whatever God the Holy Spirit wants to do. That we stand, we lay on hands, and we pray for people, or we just stand quietly and we say, Holy Spirit, we just want to welcome you. We want you to come and pray. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't need to do it. He doesn't need the Holy Spirit's power, as it were, to be there. The Holy Spirit comes because Almighty God wants us to know who Jesus really, really is. There is no evidence in the Gospels that anyone saw the dove landing on Jesus' head other than maybe John the Baptist and maybe Jesus himself. I don't know if you were standing there and a dove landed on your head. Would you know about it? Or would you see it come? I don't really know. But there's no, no evidence that anybody else knows. But what we have here at the baptism, before Jesus is going to go into the wilderness to take on the arch enemy, is that we have the pronouncement that Jesus is, as it were, on the scene. And because this is such an incredible, wonderful occasion, God, the Trinity, wants to say, we are in this together. We're not there just necessarily to support Jesus. We are there, and Jesus is our representative. And as much as you see him there on earth today as a man, this Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator God. He is as much as part of us as we are of him. And so God the Father tears heaven open, and he says, I'm with you. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and says, I am with you. We are in this together. He is not just saying, oh, Jesus, you need our help because you are a man. We're saying we're here because you are us. And the awesomeness of who Jesus is sometimes gets lost in our desire to keep him human. The Godhead making a sign is far more incredible than we can ever imagine. The writers of the gospel want us to know that the Spirit has chosen to partner partner with Jesus. And I believe that it's a private occasion, actually. I actually believe that this is a fairly private occasion. And yet, I believe that the gospel writers, I got no foundation for saying this, but I do believe with all my heart that those gospel writers said, can we tell everybody about this? Can we tell everybody about this? Didn't want to tell everybody else that when it happened, we don't, as I said, we have no evidence that the Holy Spirit coming was seen by other people. This private occasion, I, I believe, is written down for us, the first century reader, and for us in the 21st, to see how awesome Jesus is in the context of the Godhead. That Jesus became man, and Jesus is still truly God absolutely inexplicable. Luke tells us that the Spirit anointed Jesus. It tells us in Luke 4, 
And, uh, and this is not just included for the sake of saying it. You know, they would have guessed that. You know, if we were Jewish friends today and you came around to my house, and uh, the first thing I would do is I would, seeing that I'm not British in this context, I wouldn't make you a cup of tea. I would, um, I would anoint you with oil because I'm a Jew. And I would, and if, I would pour it over your head and it would come down over your face, come down over your cheeks, onto your shoulders and onto your clothes. And you know, if you had your best clothes on, you wouldn't mind because I was saying you're incredibly special. And if I did it again and poured more oil on you, you wouldn't get annoyed with me because you'd say, man, this, this person thinks I am so incredibly special. And you'd say, keep pouring it. When Luke tells us in chapter four that the Holy Spirit had anointed Jesus, it wasn't to anoint him to give him power to go into the, into the wilderness. It was just telling the reader of how wonderful this person is and how wonderful and majestic is our Savior. Jesus is far more incredible, remarkable than you or I realize. And Luke is saying, I've got 20 more chapters to tell you. And I want to tell you how wonderful he is. He wants us to ask such questions as what kind of man would share his presence with the Spirit of God? Who is this man that from what we have just seen, that the Spirit of God is saying, I'm with him every minute of every day? Who is this person? It sounded, Jesus, as if you are so close to God that it makes no difference. I'm getting the impression that Jesus, you are incredibly special, and Luke would be delighted that we asked those questions. You know, in Luke 1, verse 35, when Jesus is about to be born, and for Luke, it is the first reference to the Holy Spirit. He says that the Spirit overshadowed Jesus. Why is he doing that? Presumably, it is to protect him for the dangerous times that are ahead. You know, Herod wants him dead. They're going to have to travel to Egypt. They've got a busy time coming up. It's not that at all. None of that is true at all. The Holy Spirit wasn't some Kevin Costner-like bodyguard that had been sent to take care of this helpless babe because that's what it's not there for. He was there to say, you are special. You are far more special than anyone will ever realize. And on this day, I want to overshadow you. I just want to come and stand with you so that your mother will be able to tell the story that when she was pregnant, that this baby that was inside of her was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit that makes him so incredibly unique. Who is this Jesus? Who was that baby? Who was this man that was baptized? Who is this Jesus that we should be excited about him? Friends, what the, the writers were starting to say here, and we'll look at it again, is that what they were saying was incredibly revolutionary. It was incredibly new. It was different to anything that they had ever seen before. And I want us, just as we go out of here today, as we go into our week, as we go sometimes into our situations of hopelessness, that we start to wonder again of how incredibly majestic Jesus is. Because our faith is not even based on this. 
Our faith is not based on even community. Our faith is based on Jesus Christ who came and died and rose again. There's an old hymn, some of you will know it, I'm not gonna sing it, it says, my hope is built on nothing else than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Friends, I believe that in the, in the darkness of our days, in the, in the highs of our days, the awesomeness of Jesus is the thing that brings us through, that gives us encouragement. You see, this, this letter was being written probably in first century Palestine when persecution was coming through. It was a time of persecution, being a Christian was really dodgy and they were not being liked in community. And so Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they decide how can we tell people that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is hope in the darkness. And they say, let's tell people how wonderful Jesus is because he is the foundation of our faith. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.